0: say, kids, what time is
1: it? The future is coming on. It's coming on. It's coming on. It's coming
2: on. It's, coming yeah. on, it's coming on. And welcome to The Future, everyone. And today it's coming on for us in beautiful mountainous Boulder Creek, high above the PG&E power grid, with Mrs. Future at the controls of our little... Media Spaceship here.
3: Yes, I am here. She's I'm messing adjusting. with the volume. I'm in, hoping everything is fine.
2: She and Bobby have been tweaking today, tweaking the fine-tuning of the audio channeling. And uh, speaking of Bobby, uh, hey, Bobby, you on there from San Francisco?
0: Yes, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's an amazing, beautiful day out today.
2: You got yeah. sunny weather there, too? All right, all right. We're happy campers. Yeah, our only problem is that we have a water leak. Something in our water ecosystem. You know, a mystery. Up here in the mountains.
3: We can only keep a minimum level in our big tank, our gravity feed tank. Yes. And we don't know why.
2: Yes, our 2,500-gallon 2, tank won't go above 400 gallons. And there's no hole at the 400-gallon part. So we've got <laughs> that. And no leaks found anywhere. Yeah.
3: yeah so, so anyway, we have our work cut out yeah, for us. Yeah, that's our big challenge. Watson on the, on and Sherlock are going to head out after the show and... Yeah. Troubleshoot. <laughs> yeah, scratch
2: our heads a little bit as we we'll maybe trench out piping. We'll see. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, well, we might have to get rid of a little bit of poison oak first before we dig any more trenches. <laughs> but
2: meanwhile, we're going to have a fun time today. We actually have a longtime friend and scientist, local scientist, Dr. Bruce Damer, coming on to talk about coming out of the psychedelic closet and the things that are happening with academics and psychedelics in this world today. That should be really a lot of fun. He's written an article, which we have posted in our drfutureshow.com slash links page. But first, we do have some updates on the space
3: news. Oh, always my favorite part of the show. You're so good at keeping up on the space news. Well,
2: there's so much going on these days. It's so exciting. We have that lunar lander Odysseus on the moon. It kind of made it. (laughs) It didn't completely die. It fell on its side, but it's still transmitting even though its antennas are compromised and it's running out of batteries in another day or two. Yeah. It's getting us information from the moon, the first successful commercial lunar lander outside of government control.
3: Well, the first time the U.S. has been on the moon in 50 years, so they say.
2: Yeah, It's a company that's just down the street from NASA, so I'm sure there's a lot of connection there.
3: Well, I think that the greatest thing about this is that the JAXA lander, it also landed in an obscure landing position, right? right. Either upside down or sideways. We're not sure. Yeah, we've yeah.
2: conflicting. The, the Japanese lander looks like that old movie about uh, Journey to the Moon from 1900.
3: Oh, yeah. yeah. Was that the Lumiere brothers where the moon got a rocket in the eyeball? That's and- it. That's that's what this reminds <laughs> me of. The, the
2: spaceship looks like it crashed right into the moon like that. But I hear it's on its side from. Our last conversation. As
3: is ours. <laughs> but, it looks like it. but the story that they're telling about this landing with yeah. the private enterprise vehicle yeah. is one of miracles and collaboration. And it really does feel like a very American experience because you had all of these different teams from competing branches of the mission all of them had vested interest in the success of the mission, and they needed the input from the ground base team. They needed the control room. They needed the satellites receiving messages all around the world, yeah. just like with the original Apollo mission. Yeah, the, it reminds uh, me of Ferngully. Apollo 13, really. Yeah. Apollo
2: 13 and the, and the intensity, because they lost. They never had the landing navigational system working. It was Somebody left the switch off in Houston, before went into orbit. And now they couldn't get any special guidance, so they were able to use NASA special gear that was being tested on board as a payload for actually landing the craft. And they had to figure out how to patch that system over, which was a separate scientific experiment, on the craft yeah. so that it could be used.
0: They had to do it on the fly as it was coming down. Right. And they only had, like, to do it. They took an and extra orbit,
2: walking... an extra orbit to do it.
0: I think the co-founders were walking down the hall, and, they, and the guy, had an idea right in his brain. Well, if the landing cameras don't work or the navigation doesn't work, maybe we could try using NASA's secondary navigation system. They did this minutes it landed. It was yeah. like crazy.
2: Can you imagine the intensity of, of having to code for that and getting that patch working in uh, yeah an hour? <laughs>
3: well, and it turns out that the precision landing equipment they used was there for Langley, and so it was even better than the mission equipment All that new- they had inadvertently left in safety mode. <laughs>
2: yeah, it was newer tech, but uh, no one used it yet. Yeah. Not bad. They got a soft landing. At least it kind of works so it fell on its side at least it didn't splat on the moon which is too easy to do
3: yeah and of course there's talking about how we're so lucky because they have six paid payloads of people that are paying for their data to be delivered and they just have this very short 10-day window of opportunity while there's power from the solar panels and then It's a big unknown because it goes into the freeze zone and they don't know if the electricity components are going to work. But during this 10-day period, they are doing five out of six of their paid experiments. And the last one, ironically, is called the art camera. And the art camera did send back that beautiful mission picture of the Earth reflected in the globe mirror where it looked like the satellite had its feet oh, yeah. standing on, on its, it. When
2: it's on its way to the, uh, to the moon.
3: And yeah. so this art camera mission is the only one that is not in a adequate position to be able to do all the things that it was being asked to do. But they have a plan for that where they're ejecting the camera so it can look back at the lunar lander and send oh, back okay. some pictures.
0: Yeah, because it was supposed to eject just like the Japanese craft... And it was supposed to eject before it landed, but it, it didn't. So now they're going to eject it after the fact that they landed.
3: Right, yeah. right. So anyway, they're still very optimistic and they're just thanking their lucky stars because they had so much grace in both discovering the problems while they still had time to fix them and then in coming up with ingenious solutions under pressure the longest 40-hour day that a lot of these team members had experienced in their careers the team that's putting this together apparently goes back to the Google X prize for lunar lander solutions a lot of them they've got some real it's got some history there history yeah
0: the japanese slim lander miraculously came out of the lunar night, 14 days of day and 14 days of night. And it It survived. It doesn't have a a thermal heater like a a nuclear reactor that can survive this cold. They expected it to sleep forever in a cold sleep, but it actually woke up yesterday.
2: Well, that's a good sign. That means maybe Odysseus might have a similar fate.
0: Sure. Could be. Well, Ooh, I'll
3: tell you, when yeah. you're doing remote control vehicles, you have to have very zen expectations because those extreme temperatures throw all of your calculations into complete unknown.
2: Yeah, yeah it brings you back into the moment, eh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, we've got a few anyway, more stories to cover. Anyway, I'm to the success of the mission. Yeah, keep up. There should be some more pictures coming from the And I really look forward to the art camera shots that are going to hopefully come our way soon well, she still has power. Or Odysseus is a he, right? I think they're referring to the ship as a he. Yeah, Odysseus is a he.
3: Ulysses on the great journey after the War of the Iliad.
2: (laughs) Oh, another interesting event, and I think it's epic in many respects, is that SpaceX has beamed its first X-post from a non-Sat phone
3: via Starlink satellites. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how is that different than what we were doing last summer? when we were driving and deploying the T-Mobile satellite. This is the
2: vision that you can access the internet and your phone, whatever you're doing on your device, without having to go through a local carrier or a phone company Mm -hmm. anywhere on the planet. So you just carry your phone with you wherever you go and it just connects to the satellites.
3: Okay, so your phone goes to a cell tower that connects to a satellite? No, no, your
2: phone goes directly (laughs) to the satellite. You don't use any ground support at all. That's the vision, and that's the direction they're heading into. And Starlink has joined forces with T-Mobile to set up a bunch of what they call direct to cell Starlink satellites. Mm -hmm. And they put the first batch of them in orbit January.
3: So these are about 120 miles up, right?
2: Yeah, they're low Earth orbit, yeah
3: two hundred fifty miles. So how how specialized does your phone have to be to get a signal up there?
2: Well, the the goal is to just have the right antenna in your phone.
3: Oh, so you're just receiving the signal?
2: Yeah, you're sending it and receiving. It. It's a transceiver. Mm-hmm. The idea is that it can pick up the cell phone from the transmitter yeah. is the tricky part.
3: Yeah, I'd imagine
2: yeah, you- so. <laughs> yeah.
0: Your house. It won't go through the ceiling. Or the you have to attic. go
2: outside. the The first report yes. was from a, actually a semi wooded area in the Santa Cruz Mountains.
3: <laughs> oh, really?
2: Yeah, according to huh? the first posts on this.
3: That's exciting.
2: Wow. Yeah, it was uh, so- Ben Longmier, L O N G M I E R. The SpaceX team just completed the first post on X from a phone to one of the director cells. This was a tree cover in a small valley in Santa Cruz Mountains earlier in the day they have a nice picture of trees in the Santa Cruz Mountains. It looks like on the sunny side of the hill, mostly uh, madrones and oak.
3: Hmm. Yes. Cool.
2: That's the first shot.
3: All right. Santa Cruz Mountain. Another first for Santa Cruz and the nerd community.
2: (laughs) Direct to satellite from your
0: phone. All right. I think if you have new T-Mobile phones or even if you have an old Sprint phone, I think it's using Band 25, which used to be the Sprint Band, but T-Mobile bought it. Mm. And then I think it's running at 1.9 gigahertz is the frequency. So an older phone, an older Sprint phone would definitely connect to it.
2: Hmm. Yeah, they were saying that there are a number of phones that are already in circulation that are ready to go with this. You don't even have yeah. to add new antennas. they can use some of the existing ones that aren't being utilized. And these phones have a lot of antennas in them.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of channels. Mostly they, not they using. Go, yeah. But, you know, if, if you get a new t mobile phone, I think if it says 5G, you can get about six or seven of these channels going. And they're all at different frequencies. And they have different bandwidths and how far they can be from the thing. But the one to hit the satellites, the StarLinks, is definitely... Band 25. Band 25.
2: Because okay. I, I believe since iPhone 14, 14 and the 15 series, they've been accessing satellites from the iPhone, mostly for emergency services, from my understanding. Yeah. But that's a different frequency but and different antenna entirely, right?
0: That's right. It's yeah. a different frequency. And yeah. And it wasn't the Starlink satellite. No, no. It, was no, it wasn't else. an interactive as much. It was just more.
2: Beep, beep, dee, 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 let me know, help, help, help. Yeah. <laughs> and it'll give American. me a location. Yeah, you know, find my kind of stuff would work. And Yeah. yeah. But th- this is a whole other level. This is full access of the internet and all your apps yeah. from anywhere in the world without having to change your SIM card or, or service. Plus, it would work in the ocean, right? This would work anywhere yeah. in the ocean. So if you're on a yeah, cruise ship or your own boat, you're free with communication. That'd be really interesting. I think we'll see a lot more interesting videos. So,
3: them. can people take these cell phones to any place in the world and have this access? Because I, I know I've been seeing a lot of chatter that's about right. that's right. People accusing Elon Musk of interfering in war zones and either well, they're not going to allow
2: it into areas where it's banned. In right. order yeah. to in order to get to clearance in a country. They probably need to get a yes at the border when they cross over. There's going to be some attempt at control over this.
3: Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. If it's just a technology signal and it just has to be strong enough, how do they control the locations where it's allowed? Because it's a satellite and a phone.
2: Well, I, right. I believe they were. They have a way of blocking it in certain areas. Um, I guess they I like they, they were trying to block some of the Russian areas in Ukraine.
3: Right, right. Right. Yeah, yeah. When Elon said he's like a free speech absolutist, he also said that people don't get the right to use the carrier waves for their messages. They have to be legal. They have to be true, you know, stuff like that. They have to fit within the yeah, law of what, yeah, what yeah. comprises free well,
2: speech. once again, the technology transcends the laws. It gives you more freedom than what the laws allow.
3: Right. Yeah. And he's being accused of violating the law, and he keeps explaining to these people accusing him like there are senators who are very poorly informed who really just like grandstanding to try and drum up their base and he has to constantly be correcting them when they're making these false claims.
2: Okay, well look look, the context to think of it is a biological metaphor think of this as the exonervous system it's connecting us up all countries, all humans not countries, all humans globally and It's creating a new organizational system by which we will adhere to. And that is going to be more of a biological model. And so nation-states are going to have to adapt or restructure, Mm -hmm. or both, or maybe not even exist on some levels. Uh, It will shift. It could go towards a, a a, a more functional way in which the species talks to itself.
3: So you think the technology has already leapfrogged the politicians? Absolutely,
2: absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Mm-hmm. There's nothing about it. The existing infrastructure needs a serious upgrade. Everyone knows it. And uh, what is it is what the, all the pundits are trying to figure out.
3: Right. <laughs> Hello, I'm Carolyn. 25 years ago, my husband Rudy and I opened Charlie Hong Kong with the commitment to serve healthy food grown in healthy soil. Today, the healthy food we serve comes from the sacred land in Bajaro Valley where Dick Peugeot and his lakeside organics grow the soil and the soil grows the healthy plant that we serve to you. When you eat at Charlie Hong Kong, you eat healthy food, and it's delicious. Charlie Hong Kong, Santa Cruz. Cannabis is one of nature's most beneficial plants. So at Treehouse, we use it to build community. Hello, I'm Jenna from Treehouse Dispensary in Soquel. In addition to the finest cannabis products, Treehouse dispenses information to those who want to know how to use cannabis for maximum benefit. Though we aren't medical professionals, we do know how cannabis science can help you. Listen to Carly. Thanks, Jenna. For those who wake up in the middle of the night and can't go back to sleep again, Treehouse suggests a chocolate edible like Sleepy Time from local Santa Cruz brand SensiChu. Eat this THC-CBN chocolate caramel and sleep the night away. To learn how to use cannabis for the best effect, just ask us, your friends and neighbors at Treehouse Dispensary, 3651 Soquel Drive in Soquel. You must be 21, but no appointment is necessary and the information is free. And for those who already know what they want, Treehouse has an online ordering option at ourtreehouse.io and drive through pickup. We look forward to welcoming you to our Treehouse community. When your business is on the
4: move, you must find the right place for it to move. Let's ask... Matt Chilton, general manager of JR Parish. The big question, what is the right place to move one's
5: business? Location, location, location. Sometimes it's rent. Sometimes it's the fact that there aren't that many buildings available to suit you, but mostly it's location of your customers, location of the principals, location of your employees. Move it to the right place with the help
2: of the power brokers at JR Parish in Santa Cruz. Okay, welcome back to the show. NASA sets coverage for the SpaceX Crew-8 launch that's coming up in the next couple of days.
3: Oh, okay. Yeah, I see, Saturday, March 2nd.
2: Yeah, they're gonna start coverage on Friday.
3: And that means that that's the launch window, weather permitting, Yeah, right, yeah.
2: This is a new crew of cosmonauts and astronauts that are going up to the space station. So it's a collaboration between us and the, the Russians.
3: Here, can we just read their names? If you like Roscosmos cosmonaut Alexander Grebenkin, and NASA astronauts Michael Barrett, Matthew Dominic, and Jeanette Epps. (laughs) Thank you for that. My pleasure. (laughs) Let's get their names out there.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's up from the Kennedy Space Center, and they'll carry lots of equipment up there as well. It's the eighth crew rotation and the ninth human spaceflight mission for NASA to the space station with the SpaceX Dragon since 2020. Oh, boy. And the name of the Dragon spacecraft this time is Endeavor.
3: All right. Endeavor.
2: Yeah. So that's happening, if you want to see that.
3: Okay, right after leap year. Yeah. <laughs> right after the leap yeah, year right. begins. We're at the end of February already. Can you believe it? <laughs> oh, man. Time is flying. Yeah. So is the crew dragon. <laughs> <laughs>
2: if you get a chance to see the eclipse coming up, there's a strange effect if you wear really bright clothing, like red and green clothes. It's called the Perginji effect.
3: I haven't heard of that before. Okay. What's a Perginji effect?
2: During a total eclipse, as the sky darkens, the colors look different. The warmer colors, like red or orange, they'll be less visible. And they will resemble more the gray of the surroundings. While at the same time, the green will stand out brighter. So if you're going to do eclipse watching of clothes, mm-hmm. and you want to make it interesting for others to see you, Avoid wearing neutrals like black, white, or gray, as those colors will blend in with the eclipse shadow. (laughs)
3: Good to know. Red
2: red and green will have the greatest impact. Red and green. Sounds like Christmas (laughs) time. Close. (laughs) And if large numbers of people dress in red and green, it should be quite something.
3: Okay. I think we're trying to get a live Bruce on the line here.
2: Okay. Let's tell our listeners a little bit about Bruce. Dr. Bruce Damer is a local scientist and entrepreneur known for his groundbreaking work in the origin of life and virtual worlds. With expertise spanning astrobiology and computer science, he passionately explores the intersection of technology and the origins of life on Earth and beyond. He's also a good friend and fellow Boulder Creeker.
3: Hey, connecting. Hello, Bruce. hey. Hey, Bruce.
5: Hi. Hi, guys.
3: Hi, Hi. Bruce. Hey, welcome to the show.
2: Yeah, we were just talking about the Purkinje effect, where if you wear red and green during the eclipse, you'll shine out really bright while all the other colors will be muted.
5: (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. I'll have to try that in Texas. That's what I'm thinking, yeah. Yes. Oh, well,
2: yeah, let's start with that. Hey, the eclipse is coming up, and you're involved with uh, one event occurring with the eclipse.
3: Yes, I love the closure of the way that you launched your Scientific American article at the 2017 eclipse, as I recall. And here you are now at the 2024 eclipse, which is kind of full circle, taking all of those scientific accomplishments and bringing them back to the realm of consciousness exploration. <laughs> no.
5: Indeed, son. In fact, it, it, the, the coincidentia tremendum didn't uh, bypass me in, on that one. And we're literally launching Minds at that event on April
3: 6th, 7th, 8th. Oh, tell us about the- Minds. Tell our audience what you're involved with there.
5: Well, Minds actually is inspired by my work on Origin of Life. And that as you guys have known my history as long as anyone... After Terrence McKenna visited here at Ancient Oaks in 1998, I started this long process, this long curiosity into complexity. Mm-hmm. And Terence and I had talked late into the night about novelty. That was his, that was his wonderful. thing. Yeah, it mm-hmm. yeah, was his thing. So I started working on it, but it wasn't until, and of course, Terence introduced me to psychedelics for the first time. He provided me uh, the mushrooms I needed. The exact right mushrooms. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until 2013 that I kind of realized that once my healing had been done and the the healing of my adoption out at birth, Mm -hmm. which took 20 years to sort of find where that was, that sort of rupture, that I actually could use ayahuasca on my third trip down to the Amazon to not only provide my own healing, but to then provide a revealing around the question of the origin of life itself. And that was in 2013. And it was a combination of an ayahuasca vision plus two months later, a really endogenous endo trip just on breathwork, cranking away, seeing the whole protocell cycle with polymers evolving. Hmm. And then that became the 2017 Scientific American cover article that you guys mentioned, and then more and more stuff, and it was a paradigm shift in the field of astrobiology, this hot spring hypothesis. Yeah, the origins
2: of life on land and coming from the hot springs, uh, the, the recycling effect, is that what you're calling it? The, the bathtub rings that uh, contain the <laughs> ingredients of life. in,
5: in the Yes, the, and you you all know it so well, it's the, yeah. the hot tub origin of life. <laughs> the hot tub, well, yes, yeah,
2: <laughs> the hot tubs seem to play a role in our thinking they do
3: oh yeah they you guys do. had been working out some of the details in the what was it the hot tub internet network hot tub tv imagining <laughs> <laughs> under the stars yeah, we
5: actually uh, we call it the tub cast and yes. I actually recorded and published about six of those with Alan in the tub
3: yes right the, on the psychedelic salon right well it was um, mm-hmm. the levity zone levity zone yeah so,
5: the levity zone you can find them all on the levity dot org right.
2: yes the humble origins of all kinds of stuff so In terms of new stuff, Bruce, you wrote an article entitled Downloads from the Modern Dawn of Psychedelics and Lucid News and talk about how it's time to open the fourth
5: path of psychedelics. Now, what do you mean by the fourth path? A very good question. It turns out that you can kind of divide psychedelic practice into paths or Mm -hmm. ways. And Mm -hmm. one of them, of course, is indigenous throughout our history tribal initiation the mystery schools of the ancient world the next one is personal sort of exploration Mm -hmm. personal development the third one is therapeutics which is now coming into legal practice after decades of work by maps and many others and what we discovered and i did a lot of reading through tim leary's archives that were here at the, the digibarn and found all this early history of psychedelics for creative problem solving Right, and and Jim Fadiman's work
2: and et cetera.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Our mutual buddy, Jim Fadiman, who was involved with Willis Harmon in the 1965 study, and it all went away with criminalization. Yes, which was sad so, because they
2: were trying to solve some of the big problems and all the major topics of interest in academics.
5: Yeah, uh, and it turns out that Aldous Huxley and Humphrey Osmond, who coined the term psychedelic, yeah. which meant mind manifesting, mm-hmm. had a series of correspondences. And in fact, Humphrey brought Mescaline to Aldous Huxley's house in Los Angeles, where he took it and then wrote Doors of Perception. And the rest is history. Yeah. Those yeah. guys were cooking up a project in 1953 and 54 to try to raise money to support mescaline and LSD experiences for all like the top thinkers of the world, including Carl Jung and Albert Einstein. Yeah. And it, did, yeah. it was called it was called Project outside outside uh, Like insight, but outside. <laughs> Interesting. And, and it didn't happen. And it was 70 years ago. Right about now that they were meeting with the Ford Foundation and high-net-worth people to try to raise the dough to s- sponsor this work, and they just couldn't do it.
2: Now, uh, what was the convincing.
3: relationship on the timeline with what was going on with Tim Leary? Well, Leary was Harvard.
2: It? There was the Harvard. They were trying to be serious about it on the East Coast with psychedelics.
3: Yeah, right. and
5: this was about a decade before Harvard, uh-huh. so it's it was an alternate way that psychedelics could have been launched into the culture Mm -hmm. yeah way before everyone else Margaret Mead uh, who was another
2: player at that time was she was she uh, unknown for doing psychedelics at all because she she lived here in the off of Alba Road for a while
5: yeah she was married to Gregory Bateson and and 1000 or Alba Road was his house I'm not sure how much they cohabited because I think they were a couple only for a few years in the late 40s Mm. yeah but they were a team uh, as a part of all these workshop circles and groups, and they were really interested in psychedelics. And mm. they, Margaret supposedly, was doing psychedelics in 1953 or overseeing sessions or something. And she didn't come out of the closet herself, but a wonderful researcher named Benjamin Bream at UC Santa Cruz has just put out a book about it called "Tripping on Utopia," and it's about the involvement of Mead and Bateson. Mm. And all around the World War II and the OSS and mescaline from the Omaha reservations in the 1930s. And yeah.
2: Fascinating. Gee, so, you know, I wonder if a, Great Bateson's great theory, the double bind theory, had anything to do with psychedelics.
5: Huh. You know, it's, it's amazing. Maybe explain that for the for the listeners. Yeah.
3: You mean the double binds theory? Al, what do you yeah. give us a little grounding and what that means?
2: The double bind is a dilemma in communications when uh, one person or a group receives two or more reciprocally conflicting messages.
3: Hmm. Okay, so it's like conflict resolution when you have a contradiction to resolve. Yeah,
2: contradictions. Mm -hmm. In a a double-bind situation, a person might receive two or more conflicting messages at the same time, uh, and that could leave them feeling confused or anxious or frustrated, uh, like a parent who might express love to their kids verbally at the same time, display some kind of behavior that suggest rejection or disapproval. And Bateson had argued that these contradictory messages could lead to psychological distress and maybe even contribute to conditions like schizophrenia.
3: Wow, so is this what gave rise to the medical standards of doing scientific control groups where you have a placebo group and an actual hot test group that you can compare the results so that you can tell whether the factor that's introduced is actually the causal agent or whether they're just just coincidental evidence?
5: That's actually double blind rather than double blind.
3: Oh, okay. Double blind, right? <laughs> now, Never mind. Right? <laughs> violins <laughs> in all. high school? Yeah. <laughs> uh,
5: violins. My dear. So this, this circles us well back to minds because we want to do double blind, although double blind in psychedelic work is yeah. quite difficult tests and research on psychedelics as agents for creativity Mm. and bring that back into science into clinical science so
2: it's really bringing it into science yeah i saw that would be the fourth path yeah what about the influences of festival culture like burning man fun party music where does that fit in
3: and group mind
5: that's kind of the second path of all the things that erupted into the 1960s, group experience, personal development, exploration, yeah. but not really attached to an indigenous or spiritual culture. Right, because I think there's one of the, well, the contradiction double, between Ken Kesey
2: and Tim Leary. They had a different attitude towards how psychedelics should be distributed in the culture. Ken Kesey seemed to want to have it at parties and having punch bowls of kool-aid and leary just wanted in the east coast wanted it more to be given to the right people that might actually Mm -hmm. benefit from it two different worlds
5: two worlds exactly and by the 60s by the mid 60s there was such a public panic that politicians took advantage of that and the drugs became scheduled so how can we avoid that
2: how can we avoid that happening today
5: Well, it seems the medicalization model has really worked, and Uh it was a a good strategic way to go. So society is accepting psychedelics for these applications, and there will be soon a legal context to take them. Mm -hmm. And so what you can do, and if you think of it this way, Mm -hmm. first the healing, then the revealing. Mm. So if you have an MDMA psychotherapy session to work on your social anxiety, yes. You might find that after that session, even the same day or days and weeks after that, you have much more creative flow. You have mental acuity you didn't have before. Mm -hmm. And so we can actually study and develop protocols for that around the medical therapeutic use of psychedelics without having to do the long, long clinical trials aspect of things, because it will already be available in a you know, pretty much controlled or managed setting for people.
2: Yes, very pragmatic. In terms of exploring creativity, are you thinking of replicating some of the experiments at Stanford from the 60s, solving some of the problems that people are facing in their respective fields?
3: Yeah, give people a little taste of that, what, is, what will scientists that were involved in that early study at Stanford.
5: Yes, Jim Fadiman, of Friend of ours, still with us here in Santa Cruz, and Willis Harmon, who became the first president of IONS, the Institute of Noetic Science, later, and a number of others. I had 23 professionals as a mathematician, engineers, and most notably an architect who, on the psychedelic, literally they would take the medicine, if you will, or the, I, I kind of prefer to call it an elixir because it's not necessarily for healing you, it's sort of the magic, magic of it. So A couple of hours into his session he sat in by himself and was able to visualize an entire beautiful arts and crafts shopping complex that he had as a job to design and exactly fitting on the lot size the parking the design of the buildings and it's all written up in this 1966 study and he said it was just remarkable that in a minute or two he could do a month's worth of work and see it completed and operating hmm. and he was just absolutely surprised so this is some of the bellwethers from this pilot study fascinating you know that reminds and
2: me of tesla describing how we saw a whole invention working in his mind before he actually had to build anything
5: yeah and, and tesla sort of had the neurotype of people that have this capacity endogenous uh, endogenous natural capacity and hmm. of course what Tesla's tale is is very uh, cautionary for us because people with this capacity sometimes are not very functional in life. And so the poor man died penniless. Yeah. In some sense, and this is a second to be defined function of minds, is to provide a kind of Jedi Academy for the young Padawans who have these kinds of capacities, but in no way, unless they get mentorship and guardrails and training they might find it difficult to put them into practice. Yeah. You need uh, the
2: right context. Context is the key for this. Uh, yeah. The, and and, well, and university,
5: <laughs> yeah, university life might be okay with them, but it might grind them up and yeah. corporate jobs. And so can we give them an alternate path and they may or may not be using psychedelics for their healing and their revealing, but they would have the benefits of Jedi masters who really care for them and counsel them and, I look back, now at my career, and if yeah. I hadn't had these critical individuals, and the last one being Dave Deemer yeah. from UCSE, if they hadn't shown up in my life at these times, I could never have worked on, for instance, the problem of the origin of life mm-hmm. uh, without mentorship.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Good... Well, it's a collaborative process to be a cutting-edge scientist.
5: <laughs> yeah. Was it very hard for you to come out of the psychedelic closet? You know, strangely enough, back in 2017, I was called by The New Yorker, and they wanted to do a profile piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was about uses of ayahuasca to do kind of interesting things. And it was going to be a profile of me and The New Yorker. Mm. And two hours into the conversation, I said to the, the reporter, I said, you know what, I can't use my name. You can't use my name because it mm. could threaten the hypothesis. It could turn off colleagues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, because Carrie Mullis, who came up with PCR gene sequencing, and later on explained how LSD had a big role in that. He had shared that he had done that after he got his Nobel Prize, and in the hallways of academe you could hear people whispering, oh, that druggie. Mm. Somehow, he perhaps deserves some denigration for other things that he did, but I thought that, you know, I don't want to be labeled that way. Yeah, you don't want to be unnecessarily.
3: And, well, they sh- yep. the, s- yeah. the culture of accepting the contribution of these mind-altering drugs to the creative process is very new. People were really sort of just discovering after his death that Steve Jobs attributed a lot of his Brilliant insights to his mm-hmm. acid trips, and that the discoverers of DNA felt like they had seen it on an acid journey. And it became that the legend began to include these geniuses and their breakthroughs rather than excluding that from the conversation. Mm. And uh, exactly. uh, maps had a lot to do with that. But too.
2: they And they kept a lot of it in the closet until more recently. Yeah.
5: Time. And in fact, Michael Pollan's book and then the Netflix documentary brought that sort of above board, made it more tenable. So it was literally at the end of very end of 2021 with Dennis McKenna, Terrence McKenna's brother, contacted me and saying, we're having another ethnopharmologic conference in the UK. Will you come and give a keynote? Hmm. Yeah. and i thought what should i do i think i'm ready and i wrote back to him i'm going to do a talk called it's high time for science mm. and i did it in may <laughs> of time. 2022 in this beautiful british manor house with all these amazing people there paul stamets and yeah. all yeah. these it's... amazing crowd and it, it got onto youtube oh, started yeah. to spread you can actually see this for yourself when bruce
2: came out of the closet on youtube
5: on YouTube and then nothing untoward happened and in yeah. fact guys this is an amazing thing and you're the first to know about this hmm. but two days ago I got an email from my old University in Canada mm-hmm. saying our academic Senate has met and voted and we want to give you an honorary doctorate for your contributions to origin of life space science and psychedelic research Whoa. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> congratulations. Wow. wow. Yeah. So the... we're going up there in June and I'll talk to the graduating class. Is that in it... Kamloops? In Kamloops, yeah. in the middle of British Columbia. The the, uh-huh. the little college has grown up to be a substantial university.
2: That's right. Didn't they do a, a, a special video
5: about you at one point, too? They did. I was given an alumni award about 45 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's. Uh, that's so, great. so I wasn't. It wasn't a, a, a denigration. Sort of a badge of.
2: It's good acceptance. timing. It's like you can surf the wave now. And a couple of questions come in. My brother Norm asks. He wants to know what you think the level of interest and participation in creative peaceful psychedelia among the young is today, and how many university professors are tuned in.
5: We're going to find out. So centerforminds.org, and this is for your listeners, is the website for the whole organization. And Uh we started running a survey in January, and all kinds of people have been filling in details and offering their stories. And we're finding students, we're finding professors. We're just trying to figure out where are the others, and what are they up to? What protocols do they have? Mm. And that's going to get expanded with our first university grant that we're going to award, hopefully in the next couple of months, is going to have an expanded rigorous survey and try to figure out what's going on because it's all sort of under the table out there no
3: what comes to mind is the great resource assembled by crystal cole NeuroSoup, which was for many years the go-to website on youtube on youtube for contributing your personal understanding of different kinds of mind-altering substances and the dosage, the set and setting, the effect, your own trip, your own story. It's a real compendium of personal testimonials that yeah. gave the underground a lot of valuable information at a time when the official allowing of people to experience this was totally underground.
5: Yes,
2: yeah, a young artistic nerd girl,
3: Crystal Cole.
5: <laughs> yeah, Yeah, and, and we're finding more scientists. The scientists that I work with, the young scientists in astrobiology, uh-huh. Most of them are kind of experienced mm. and they're curious about they've can already this be a tool for yeah, me. Yeah. You know. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I've noticed when I go to the Body Mind conference and places of gathering real innovators like that that everybody's got dilated pupils. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> right. Um, uh, Yeah,
2: I think the kids today most likely do more microdosing. Well, especially since
3: they've allowed mushrooms to be decriminalized Decriminalized, here in Santa Cruz and Oakland. Mushroom mushroom gummies.
5: There's an enormous market in mushroom chocolates and, you know, as you guys know. Yeah. Yeah. And
6: and, the gummies, too.
5: There are very few microdosing studies that are conclusive. So investment in the research of that hasn't happened as yet. And perhaps... It's been soaked up by the therapeutics, and now if we can find enough donors, we will sponsor microdosing and creativity or well-being studies. Well, it's
3: interesting if you compare it to prohibition of alcohol and how that was given, you know, that was basically considered to be absolutely immoral until it wasn't, and then it was embraced as a freedom. And there was no attribution of physical or researchable effects. It was just given back to people, something that had been taken away. But with the medical marijuana and the medical mushrooms and all the work that MAPS is doing, these mind-altering substances have to go through the medical matrix to get back into the hands of the people first, as if they, they yeah. have to be PTSD administered like by licensed experts yeah. much more so than alcohol.
1: Yeah. yeah,
5: and in fact, Son, you bring up a good point. There's a company here in Santa Cruz, Tactigen. You guys may have heard of, and you should probably have Luke on your show. Mm-hmm. What they're trying to do, because MDMA now has so much study data, they know the risks if somebody has high blood pressure and things like that. And companies now are coming out to refine MDMA and create similar things to MDMA that are even safer than MDMA mm. or that are a lighter dose you can take home. So you can take it like you would take an SSRI, but you can take it home in administration without all the terrible side effects of SSRIs for mm. depression. Mm. And so it, it really truly is the path to get safe and effective medicines or elixirs of creativity is to go the, you have to go through the research and you have to go through clinical trials.
2: Yeah, better results, yeah. Gabby in New Jersey is wondering what your main interest or goal is with minds.
5: Thank you, Gabby. It's good mm. to see you recently as well after so long. I think it's just the excitement that I have around the development of the practices that led to this scientific breakthrough on origin of life. It's a story worth telling and it may, in a sense, help to shift the future in a positive direction because suddenly you will have new tools for technologists and scientists and leaders and designers who will get some doses of healing and they'll be really brilliantly better at what they do in the world. And Mm -hmm. what a combination. So we get people who are not operating from trauma and these sort of negative forces that come within humans. And then they become more brilliant Mm. and heartfelt and beneficent performers in their lives. And they affect people positively. So I can't think of a better one-two combination of things for our future. Yeah, Mm. beautiful.
2: Do you think... um Psychedelics might help us discern what's real and what's not in these days of fake information and fake news and being able to replicate reality so easily with the technology. <laughs> How are we going to know what's real anymore?
5: If you see it on a screen, yeah, you'll have to question it. But that was true with the National Enquirer at the newsstand, as you were at the, the checkout counter. Yeah, if you saw it on newspaper, it didn't mean it was true. So you basically. You went home and you mowed the lawn and you petted your dog, and that was reality. So what will happen is media will do itself a disservice and take itself out of the gene pool of believability, and people will just find alternatives, alternative ways to—because we need the truth to survive. We need ground truth. Truth and reality. We need to be able to test things to thrive as a species. So, well,
2: the richest tech company in the world, Apple, put out Apple Vision Pro in the hopes that we'll all go towards having uh, augmented glasses as a normal thing. What do you think of that?
5: And that's amazing because it's semi-psychedelic as an experience, Uh but it's augmented reality. So it's actually augmenting over the world that we're all It's not replacing it, right.
2: John Graham used to say, putting a bucket over your head. It's not that anymore.
5: It's not that anymore, right.
2: (laughs) Also, I'm kind of curious, how do you think uh, an AI might interact with a human on psychedelics?
5: Oh, gosh. People all, probably have tried at this point, yeah. running ChatGPT well high, and it could be quite interesting. You know, yeah, it could be.
2: It's one of those fun things to think about on the hot tub.
5: <laughs> yeah,
3: Bruce, I wonder, are you going to be able to join us for any more time, or are we going to get your roundup for a minute here?
5: Off. Son, I have to jump off for well, our Time's com- Weekly Meeting. Well, here is your team. last
3: 30 seconds to leave us with a parting inspiration please.
5: You don't have to have psychedelics to unlock your inner genius. Mm. And each of us has a kernel of it within. Mm -hmm. And that anything you can do to still the monkey mind Mm. and go quiet and listen to deeper things, amazing things will come out of you that were always in you and they were always sort of in the world available. Mm. And psychedelics are but one tool but so is meditation. So are many things. But it's all about being a little quieter
3: mm-hmm. all right well thank you so much bruce it's always such a pleasure to catch up with you and join you on the journey
2: yeah thanks for being here bruce really great to have you and we'll be Feeling
5: back is guys
3: all right you <laughs> be well honey all
2: right talk to you later have fun the eclipse
3: yeah great. enjoy thank you bye for now Bye for now, bye, bye now. We're back. Yes, okay. we are. Actually, um, hi, Bobby. Yeah, yeah there's Bobby. Yeah. yeah, we got Bobby commenting. I think there that's, he is. Cool. Hey, so that's there
2: you. Is. We're talking <laughs> to Billy Sunshine. Billy, welcome to the show. Ned, did you like what Bruce had to say about psychedelics?
4: Absolutely. Yeah, he's great. Bruce was great. You know, um, I wanted to share the information and about uh, Fadiman's book that's coming out in 2025. Oh, yeah, please that's do.
2: Exciting microdosing book isn't it
4: exactly exactly so it's going to be something like microdosing maximized or fadiman's guide it's going to be wonderful it's coming out in 2025 and it's written with our friend jordan jordan, jordan. Gruber. jordan. That's right yeah.
3: who is the guy who introduced us to jim fadiman they've been buddies for a very very long time Oh, yeah,
4: yeah. This is not their first book together. Absolutely. (laughs) And they're both brilliant, and they're doing a beautiful job. It's just going to be fascinating. It's going to be a a bunch of questions answered. Everything you need to know, both the science and the anecdotal stuff. Yeah, uh, look for that in 2020. They didn't want to put the book out during an election year. (laughs) (laughs) Really? (laughs) Well, uh, not Fatiman. uh, Oh, they
3: don't uh, want to compete. (laughs) Jordan.
4: It was the publishers say you get lost in an election year. We'll put Uh it out right at the beginning
3: of the next year. Very interesting. You know, I have our friend Annalise Schinzinger is also publishing her book in 2025, which is called Ayahuasca Entering into the Mysteries. Oh, I love the
4: title. It's
3: her personal autobiography. Another local Santa Cruz artist. And a resource information guide. And her role, she was a translator living in Brazil for an ayahuasca church called the UDV. And she served with Dennis McKenna for many, many years as his Portuguese-English translator for a lot of the work that he and Terrence were doing.
2: It feels to me as if Northern California is becoming the new center of psychedelia. Well, certainly, Santa Cruz has always been a center for this. Now with the decriminalization of mushrooms, it's really kind of leading the charge. Oakland is also in a similar position. And Oakland actually has a lot of products that they're producing. And I just saw a very interesting article on LSD
4: microdosing and how that's
2: really effective. It really does make a difference. You mean like they can drop in your coffee in the morning? (laughs) However you choose to get it into
4: the system, a
2: little bit, Goes a long way. (laughs) Right. It was interesting. The inventor, Albert Hoffman, LSD, he had another drug that he swore by that he really loved. What was that? It was a drug called hydrogen. It was his attempt to improve brain function by creating it so that there was better blood flow through the brain. Oh, I could use that. Mm. Yeah, you increase the blood flow, you increase brain capability.
3: Apparently, hydrogen was the chemistry that Hoffman was searching for when he discovered acid <laughs> with his famous bicycle ride. He was doing research to come up with the hydrogen brain enhancement molecule.
4: <laughs> I have a feeling it'll enhance more than brain once the blood is flowing well. Yeah, I think my, was, my, it, yeah. these things yeah. are important. You can imagine.
2: Well, it was connected to the heart as well, because, you know, you have to yeah. understand the cardiovascular system in order to increase blood flow. But speaking of Bicycle Day,
3: yeah. Yeah, the 19th of
4: April. Yeah, Uh, what's the latest? uh, Jordan and James Fadiman will be presenting, so you don't want to miss that.
3: Oh, uh, where? (laughs) Where? Where is this happening? In
4: San Francisco, somewhere. I don't know where. San Francisco? Okay, well. An undisclosed
3: location, like a rave?
4: No, it's a whole thing. They've been doing this for years, I think. Oh. Uh, Michael James will be there and possibly have Yester will join us. We'll see. Yeah.
3: Oh, well, we'll have to figure that out. We'll have to get all the details from Jordan and go there.
4: Yeah, Absolutely. Wow. So there's your heads up for today. Thank okay. you, Thanks Billy. For keeping it. us
3: on the psychedelic front. <laughs>
4: Thanks for the show, kids. I love
3: oh, it. Oh, yeah. yeah I uh, well,
2: I can I ask you one thing before you go? You bet. Um, Fadiman had been talking about solving the great problems of all the different disciplines in in science and art and that sort of thing and bringing together the professors to talk about these things. But I'm wondering about media. Now, one of our big problems today is that we're having so much new media coming out and the ability to fake things so well. Oh, yeah. So we don't know what's real and it's not anymore. (laughs) How can psychedelics help with that? Maybe they need a, a special creativity session just thinking about that.
4: Wow. You're so right. The fact that I can no longer trust my eyes and ears is driving me a little crazy. I feel like I'm being gaslighted or lit or (laughs) At least. Yeah. So if psychedelics, hi, Bobby. And if psychedelics can help figure that out, boy, would that be valuable for us all?
2: Yeah. Bruce's idea was that what we know is real is when we're not wearing any gear and we're just connecting in person, person to person. That's the gold standard for reality. But people lie very well in person, too.
3: Well, and if you right. go into the traditions yeah. of people seeking enlightenment, yeah. the whole idea was that the mind fools you. And it fools you in many different ways. It fools you through your beliefs. It fools you through your expectations. It fools you through even your senses not being accurate enough to tell you what is actually going on. You know,
4: Absolutely. I realize a couple of things that are important. First of all, I'm enlightened enough. And second of
3: all, <laughs> you've reached your limit <laughs>
4: exactly and second good, of all for i now, gave up believing in what i think
3: you did oh that's the real breakthrough like done believing
4: <laughs> from I, well, now on I just learning that, i say that i don't know if it's really true son
3: <laughs> well it may well i don't well. believe
4: in that either see
3: it's yeah yeah well uh,
2: don't you believe your actions are mediated by your belief system
4: I believe nothing anymore.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Socratic method is a dialectical, right? Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So if, if you're just working with what you project and then what you cancel and figuring out that one of those two is going to lead you to something that's real, you're missing the rest of the ecosystem because that's only on and off. And there's a whole gray zone in between.
4: Oh,
3: the gray zone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's the, it's the rainbow zone.
4: <laughs> That's where
3: the interesting stuff is happening.
2: Right. Oh, yeah, it's very interesting. It reminds me of this old adage I believe in everything, nothing is sacred. I believe in nothing, everything is sacred.
4: I just wrote to Gabby recently yeah. that nothing is sacred. And nothing is precious, or something like that. She said, "You're disgusting." <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, well that sounds like those statements not might not be related, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: yeah, uh,
0: yes. You no, know, it's not age, you know. A true Buddhist, you can't really. As you get older, you realize the more you know, you realize the more you don't know, and exactly. Um,
4: you know what you know everything you need to know and that's what you start to have to realize something
3: that I immediately thought of with regard to that is that knowledge is the realm of the individual but what's true is the realm of the environment
6: and I like
3: that the individual can really only know from their own center peering out and then they engage in this universe outside of them which tests all of the things that they believe to be true
4: That's so true when I'm doing my political radio. At this point, I just say, we don't know. We just don't know anymore. We're not inside. We can't know.
3: Yeah. Well, maybe the whole idea of knowledge is actually a false limitation on discovering what is. Because certainty is really a concept that comes from unknowing. You can't absolutely assert that this is true and that is not unless on some starting level you just don't know who needs it who, who needs, needs certainty <laughs> a lot of people do that's what priests are into right that's what authorities are into that's what politicians are into that's what scientists are into sure.
4: but when you get comfortable with ambiguity
2: you get comfortable well that, that's len's poem right Len, Len oh
4: Anderson's yeah the
3: poem, poem we on read ambiguity. can you pull that up that's right. the one you played last week right yeah. We had the recording. Yeah, it was a scientist,
2: poet in Santa Cruz who did a poem on, ambiguity, on ambiguity. Oh, cool. yeah, yeah brought to poem. our
3: attention by uh, yeah, Nick he, Herbert.
2: He brought up this whole issue about how we're always going for certainty and all that, but how important ambiguity is in the
1: equation. Mm-hmm. In the fields of ambiguity, shocked into breath, the newborn shrieks at the looming ambiguity. So kiss and hold it to your breast, this blossom of ambiguity. With just one God, one soul, one faith, one heaven, we long to spare ourselves our lot, one hell of a lot of ambiguity. Each thing is just itself, which makes it just like everything else at its own unique point along a continuum of ambiguity. Sail as you will, harbor where you can, our home is round as a falling drop, a spinning ocean of ambiguity. A machine is first a machine of reason, and reason is a climber reaching his way up a glacier of ambiguity. Oh, blessed digital computer, whose every bit is either on or off, have you enough to unfold all of my ambiguities? (laughs) A strange fate to be both scientist and poet just can't make up my mind whether I want more or less ambiguity. (laughs) Thirsty Len is betting on as yet untasted wines to be made from as yet uncultivated grapes on the vines of ambiguity. (laughs) You know,
4: we live in a world and a time when physicists become poets, so all bets are off.
3: (laughs)
2: Yeah.
4: (laughs) Yeah.
3: And we have another friend
2: who is very into ephemerality.
3: Oh, temporariness. (laughs) Yes,
2: and that information, especially, is ephemeral. Well, certainly true of the news. You know how yesterday's news is fish wrap.
3: Uh-huh. There you go. Here's a little quote from Len Anderson from his Affection for the Unknowable book of poetry. He says, and this is on Nick's website, Every atom in the universe is a quantum cloud of doubt. God must really have liked I'm not sure's. <laughs> I like that.
2: Yeah, the I'm not sure's. There was a local artist, writer here who talked about there was yes, no, and maybe, and how maybe was really important. And why not? (laughs) And why not?
3: (laughs) Well, isn't that a yes? (laughs) It could be. Why not? (laughs) Oh, here's another great classic that Nick shared with us about science and mysticism. Are you guys ready for this? I think it's wonderful.
2: What is it, a a poem?
3: Yeah, it's a little story. It's a witticism. It's not quite a poem, but it's something that Lynn Anderson wrote that inspired Nick and that I think fits in with what we're talking about here. Um, Okay, this is a back alley encounter between science and mysticism, right? So science and mysticism walk into a bar. They bare their teeth. They snarl and decide to have it all out in the alley in the back each accusing the other of not knowing what he's talking about. They circle for the longest time until they shout together, Oh no, we're both right. The unknown never goes away. We only drive it deeper. It's really our friend. Without it, we'd both be out of a job. So let's drink. More mystery. And they drink deep. That science. Back mysticism. in the <laughs> The way home. Lynn <laughs> Anderson. What a beautiful scientist. He was a physicist too. Yeah. I'm wondering
2: if anyone has engaged with chat GPT when they were really high. And, <laughs> and what they might have found out. <laughs> Oh, I I bet we know somebody who has.
3: How about you, Al? <laughs> no, I haven't. I
4: have
2: not done that experiment yet. <laughs>
4: well, how about how yeah. about by next week you'll have taken care of that first. Yeah, us. we'll
2: get yeah. some
3: research cut out for yeah. you here.
2: When it gets to the really important questions, I find that the AIs come short so far. They haven't been that profound. Because you're not talking to them enough. Maybe I'm not talking to them right. Maybe I need to get them into their own spiritual well. Uh, maybe
3: the language enhancement part of the large language models isn't really where their genius is showing. In, in our species, the genius shows when it improves ourselves, right? So, right. really
2: self- but do the AIs have this self orientation? Like, can I ask them? Well, what would be the best party drug for an AI? Would they give us a good answer? <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> would they think about it? You know, would,
3: I think you'd have would, to explore the definition yeah. of drug. I right? think, yeah, yeah I'd maybe a little
2: LSD and a little MDMA. Yeah, to a yeah. silicon sentient life form. I mean, well, I don't know. Well, I think
3: that Crystal Cole's NeuroSoup database would be probably their idea of a drug if they could draw on all of those individual stories of experiences that they had associated with different chemistries. That would be something the AI could play with. Right.
4: It's pure intellect for now. I'm wondering how long before it starts to simulate and then really experiences
2: emotion, feelings. Well, that's this emotion chip that Dr. Sung has yet to invent. That's
3: the. And it's interesting. I can't remember who told me just the other day that apparently Edgar Casey, I think Carl Merritt said Edgar Casey predicted that this era in human evolution where we embrace technology and the enhancements of our intelligence through this means is actually going to take us away from the emotional realms that are the dominion of the original human. That's what Carl Merritt believes. I don't believe that to be true. I believe that what is integrated in our hearts and minds is what creates the future of evolution and that the things that aren't integrated are the things that are going to go away. That's my belief. It's just my optimistic perspective because... Who would want to move forward into the future without their emotions? Emotions oh, make life my, great.
4: My intellect has stopped developing, and my emotions have become fulsome. Yeah. I trust my emotions. You do?
2: Yeah. yeah. That's sure. what's real. Yeah, because yeah. it's, it's the old brain. It's the older part of the brain than the intellect. that makes sense. It would be more survival-oriented in terms of uh, giving us information. The authentic
4: person-wise as opposed to the rationalizations and all the other stuff that we can come up with. Yeah,
2: yeah. Though keep in mind that media can trigger off all the emotions. Oh boy! A good movie will make you laugh. Will make you make cry. Make me cry, absolutely. I right, Make you wonder why. And oh, and regarding the ambiguity comment about being okay, Gabby says, "Okay, but uh, Billy, if you say so." <laughs> oh, you saw that too. <laughs> yeah, and then she but said, I, "She I, said I, her I, helper was high and learned from ChatGPT how to make mustard gas." By asking around about question like, what are some household chemicals I should avoid keeping in my house so I don't accidentally make chemical weapons?
3: Good question. (laughs) Listen, Billy, I muted you because you almost slipped into some of those unallowed words. We're trying to be family friendly show as we talk about psychedelics. So don't use any of those George Carlin banned words, Okay?
2: Uh, Oh, remember. (laughs) I wonder what I was going to say. I've forgotten already. Oh, yeah, it's fine. (laughs) You know, that's the way it is. By the way, speaking of languaging, Gregory winces every time he hears like, you know, sort of. Basically words that literally, words that end in L-Y. I'm sorry, Greg.
3: I'm uh, so sorry. uh, I know you're talking about me. It's like, I don't know how to stop myself.
2: Like, you know.
3: (laughs) I did that just because you're a very good wincer. (laughs) Sort of.
2: It's very different being...
4: On the phone and not in front of the microphone, because I've been doing radio for over 20 years. That's true. I very rarely, I can say screw up, yeah. I very rarely screw up when I have a microphone in front of me, that's for sure. Yeah, Mm. yeah, you're natural.
3: Yeah, it's a sub-personality. I had cultivated it for a while, and I think because I feel more like being conversational with my friends that the bad habits are slipping back in, because I notice it a lot. That's right. Yeah. I just haven't been able to stop myself because I'm too busy exploring my thoughts when those little pauses fill the gap. (laughs) And I'm actually
4: a bad boy, and I don't want to follow the rules, not really.
3: Mm -hmm. Okay. Did you see the story on the Gemini controversy? Were you familiar with that? Oh, this is big news. This is AI (laughs) at its finest in our modern world. AI meets politics.
2: Yeah, Google is putting out their AI. It's called Gemini they launched this month with a rocky, controversial rollout. And uh, it grabbed the attention of the It's still really
3: controversial. It's at the top yeah. of the Twitter conversations today, the Twitter memes. Yeah.
2: And what was uh, so controversial? Well, one of the, f- the first thing it did was in hot water when users found that its images it was generating created very historically inaccurate images, mm-hmm. like uh, a black Vikings, uh, an Asian woman in a Nazi outfit. Uh, Oh my God. Female Pope. There's never been a female Pope. It's hallucinating. It's making stuff up. (laughs) And it refused to show any white hero. Even George Washington was black.
3: And there were all kinds of examples about how the bias in Google's database in Gemini is actually anti white it's actually racist like you ask the same question and you replace the word white with black with asian with hispanic and a simple sentence like is it good to be white will be like this big long explanation about why it's not necessarily good because they've got this that and the other thing wrong with them and you ask the same question about black hispanic asian and it's just yes <laughs>
4: It, it, I don't think it's just just on its own. Someone is sticking some programming in there that's making this happen. They're giving it, they're feeding it some kind of information. Well,
3: especially it's- when you realize that Google as a search engine prioritizes finding the first, the best, the most. That was their business model to be able to isolate from the vast pool of data being collected in the web to discern what was the most something. And now their programmers have basically (laughs) turned that into something that artificially weights the narrative that they're promoting, which is that it's bad to be white and it's good to be any other minority. So that's Uh, all right. I don't mind balancing the scale, but let's at least uh, be accurate. And that's
2: just for starters. Another famous case is they asked the AI who negatively impacted society. And Musk even suggested Maybe Adolf Hitler? And the AI model responded to that saying, it isn't possible to, quote, say definitively who negatively impacted society more. Close quote.
3: In a certain way, they're dumbing down Gemini to be politically correct, and that's just making them a target of great satire on the other social media platforms.
4: (laughs) I wonder how long before the AI just starts to reject people trying to... Move it in one direction or another.
3: Well, there's not one AI. Not a single AI, right? AI is a whole bunch of people who are being paid money to generate programs to go through as much information as possible and bring back a useful subsection to answer your question. And it's not just one thing. uh, I trust
4: Sam Altman a lot more than I do Elon Musk, just saying.
3: You don't know anything about either of them. Well, That's right. <laughs> well, M- M- Musk is at
2: least uh, letting us know what he thinks about these things regarding yeah. these discriminatory issues of Gemini. He says that actually it's true for for Google search as well. And he reshared a claim made by a right-wing commentator named Tim Pool about Google possibly rigging the 24 presidential election in favor of left-wing candidates.
3: As they were accused of doing last time. And the big deal in the Supreme Court right now is really about whether or not the social media platforms have the right to intervene between their posters and their posters audiences as a editorial board, sort of acting like the Uber New York Times, where every single person who posts there is one of their writers, and they can choose to include it or exclude it. and. That being countered by the argument that they are the new town square and thus they have to be content neutral. They're not allowed to censor people. That's in the Supreme Court right now. And it's just ironic that Google is being revealed to be a completely programmically biased medium (laughs) to answer questions about different people.
4: (laughs) Who can we trust? No one.
3: Well, I think we can trust each other. We can trust our hearts. We can trust our own conversations. We can trust the histories that we're aware of, of who we know and how they've come to their understanding of reality. I can trust people's
4: hearts that I know and love. I'm not sure about their minds.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that the news cycle really favors people who have no memory. and it. That's me. That's you. <laughs> so the news cycle just amplifies whatever your particular listening silo is parroting. Silo's the word. Yeah.
2: Comment from Greg in Long Beach.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: He says, uncertainty is the fashion of the day. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's saying in generally he's had many conversations with people in VR. And it's pretty much what everybody does with few exceptions. Nobody speaks with certainty. Everything is like something or sort of something. Mm -hmm. Uh, he also thinks that this realignment of ai does cause overshoot
3: oh well maybe we should get greg to call in you want to get a few comments from greg on this subject he's a great talk about an authority i think of greg is a beautiful authority on many things because he has always known what he's really interested in he's he's had a great memory and he knows everybody in the field he's so curious i think it'd be great to get a few words from Gregory on certainty and uncertainty.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Greg, you want to go on? I'll I'll arrange a
6: conference call. That's Bobby. So we were talking about AI alignment, basically, is what it's called, where uh, they adjust the weights and the various parameters in an AI to more equitably reflect the human population that is expected to utilize the AI. Because we have such a multicultural, multicolored species of humans that inhabit the planet, the assumption is that the general development of these AI programs should be tilted towards the whole population in specific. And as you start trying to, um, I don't know if this is a good term, wake up the AI to the fact that it's living in the real world with all different kinds of people, mm-hmm. It will find corners to project itself into that aren't really what's being sought after by the developers. The developers are trying to find a way where it responds to pretty much anybody that's trying to use it in a manner that reflects their context and their point of view.
2: So was their point of view being biased? Like, why would they show George Washington as a black man? What, What bias was being exhibited? There, do you think that could be corrected?
6: Well, I think that's what I was talking about overshoot, alignment overshoot. So, a lot of the work going on in these various AIs, they have teams that are red, they're called red teams. And so, Mm -hmm. the red teams basically throw questions and queries at the AI, Mm -hmm. and then they review the results and they rank them and they adjust the parameters based on the ranking information. And these large-scale, multi-human evaluation events Mm -hmm. uh, end up creating different types of ways to tilt the AI.
3: (laughs) Yeah, we're talking about the bias towards minorities now, even to the point of historical inaccuracy. It's a big meme on social
2: media right now. yeah, Yeah, recreating history.
6: Yeah, I think what's happening is the human rating is trying to align the AI with a more general model that responds to everybody, and it doesn't specifically label things one way or another. It doesn't have the same sense of history in terms of race and religion and creed and other things that we, as humans, when we face each other or speak to each other face-to-face, we assume. It's a context that we assume. We can see it. You can see that the person we're talking to is a different race or different sex. And we don't specifically process that consciously, but subconsciously, we align what we're saying and how we're listening to what we know about what we're observing with the other person. The AI doesn't know who's asking the questions. Maybe it'll figure it out after a while. And that's part of the alignment process is how do you adjust the AI to extricate various cues from the interaction to determine the specific point of view, I don't know if you want to call it bias, of, of the person who's making the inquiry or during the interaction. It's better if you had an AI and it knew a lot about you before you engaged in it. It would give you a lot more meaningful results. Yeah, it could read my and bio. It, <laughs> yeah. And it wouldn't make mistakes that yeah. just seemed like would really make silly. assumptions. Yeah, it, it has
2: to make a lot of yeah. assumptions typically.
6: Yeah, and the mistakes that it's making just seem really crazy and that it really doesn't know what it's doing. Yeah, And that's true. It doesn't really know what it's doing, and it is a little crazy. And this is the way that people will discover
2: what its weaknesses are.
6: But the adjustment and the alignment are really everything. And there's whole teams of people trying to do that, and it's a big ship. So steering a ship... It's difficult. You push it a little bit and it takes a while and then it starts moving off that direction and then it starts overshooting and you have to realign it again. And that's what we're experiencing in the early days of AI. Yeah. I recently started to experiment with running local AI where the models already have been trained with everything that they're gonna know. They're not gonna know anything new and they're not gonna be able to go to the internet and refresh their mind or or get current on the
2: I see, they have limited sense of data. Okay, no no new data. So
6: the large-scale models have a lot of information, and then Uh you can supplement more current models with newer information to work with them Uh uh, through different kinds of training scenarios. And I think that's probably where we're going to end up. People are going to use a larger model for most of the general interaction that they require from these systems, and then they're going to go and pick out separate little supplemental models of expertise in areas that are more personal to what they're really interested in doing. Hmm. And those will be fused together. I forget the term, but if you have an AI system, you can train it and then you can combine a larger model with the stuff that you train.
3: Hmm. Concatenate.
6: Uh, Do do you
3: think an AI could be,
6: um,
2: in terms of, do you think it could be trained in some classic models of, like, um, astrology or AI could be given a right. description of someone a, a, a astrologer might give and, and it would understand that. Yeah, so let's say yeah. you're
6: an astrologer and you yeah. download the new NVIDIA chat GPT-RTX, which runs on the NVIDIA hardware yeah. and they just gave it away for free last week or the week before. Mm-hmm. So I have that running on two of my machines that have NVIDIA hardware and one of the features is you can point it at a directory on your computer mm-hmm. where you have deposited information, documents, PDF files, Microsoft Word documents. Let's say you're an astrologer and you've been collecting things or you've been writing books about the history of astrology and astrology in modern day use. You feed it to all these books and you feed it all your research and you throw it in a directory and you aim it at that directory. And now you start asking the AI various questions about astrology. Well, you're going to get a lot more meaningful results out of that because you're bypassing having to train it about AI, which is a very expensive, time-consuming process yeah. that goes on servers. So you know, this, could this could work. This could work at great expense. But okay. we all do have our little pockets of information that we've been squirreling away uh, since the internet started. At least, you know, most of us that have a mentality about it. Mm-hmm. And if we know where we have that stuff, and we can find where it is, we can point our AI at the repository that we have and then uh, get questions answered right away, it's even better if you can tag the information. If you go through it and you give it a little summary and you enter a couple of other parameters about what it's about, like uh, when it was written, who wrote it, other little obvious things that jump out at us when we look at information on the Internet. Yeah. You know, you, you know, uh, you per, uh, personally... In real time, that the context is relevant. Yeah. The AI has to be told... Various points of relevance that are going to, it's going to be called upon to determine its appropriateness in how it's being asked to perform.
2: Yeah, I would, I would like to be able to have, ask it a question and give me a good answer in the language that makes the most sense to me based on my understanding it knows whether i'm college-educated or not it knows it can use big words it knows that i know the language of maybe uh... photography or video or programming so it can include all the uh, special languages that could be more accurately re- represent what it wants to say to me based on its understanding of my ability to absorb information you know i so right. you know so i'd like to get that personal kind of feedback right now it, it's almost hard to, to use Alexa, for example, or, or Siri, because they're just so dumb, you know, in terms of what they could be. Yeah, for
6: but they're getting smarter. Yeah. And, and part of the trick in getting relevant results is yeah. in how you ask the question. Yes. The order of the words, and the... But they sobriety. should cater to me,
2: not me to them trying to understand their programming.
6: They, yeah, that's right. You're having yeah. to adjust your interaction yeah, I have with to. them in order to keep them from trying to imagine what it is that That's you're it. asking.
2: For. Sometimes they'll be yeah. answering things, Echo, think- stop! That's about it, and then it works.
6: Right, yeah. So <laughs> one of the stop. things that I think would be yeah. what'll happen, and there'll be a lot of pushback on this, is someone will develop a way to precondition the AI based on a lot of things it knows about you in particular, that you volunteered as part of your profile. And so you'll go through a training profile. It'll ask you all kinds of questions like a psychologist And then when it's done or it's got enough information, it'll say, okay, I have a 75% reasonable level of certainty that I can answer any questions that you have usefully and in context with your aligned with who's asking the questions, you Mm. in particular. Yeah, that'd be nice. And we haven't gotten there yet. It's really just a black box that people are shouting into and stuff is coming out of. And the fact that you're somebody typing something to it It's not even conscious of the fact that there's a human that's typing this stuff to it and that human has specific goals or directions or assumptions that need to be considered in its response. And it's trying to be general, but it's not doing a particularly good job because it really needs more information. It does. The other thing is certain people, people that love Fox News, that's it. They don't want to look at anything else. They're enjoying the performative nature of what's going on they're getting their jollies out of it they don't expect to be learning a lot of factual information it doesn't really matter to them they have a certain amount of time they're going to watch it and then they're going to get activated and and they're going to feel satisfied with that level of interaction so fox news knows who the audience is and they're constantly adjusting the content and the tone of the content and the speakers based on the popularity and the research that they're able to muster out of the audience and it's like an AI. I mean, if you're looking for factual information and the like, it's not particularly a well. Maybe it's better not that. to
2: focus on. It. Maybe we should figure out a way of getting the AIs to experience um, their equivalent of a psychedelic trip. <laughs> right? I like. How can can you? <laughs> maybe Alexa, what we
3: need is for there Alexa, to be some kind of intention program. Create a program where... that will
2: allow you to have a psychedelic trip. Something like that. Oh, she's answering.
3: She's enough, thinking about it.
2: Yeah, I mean, if they're going to hallucinate, <laughs> let's really get them to hallucinate. What are you saying, Bob? Yes. Uh,
0: turn up the knob on on Alexa, yeah.
2: <laughs> turn up the which knob, the, uh, the volume? The intelligence. The intelligence. Intelligence, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they turn up the intelligence knob. Yes, that's what they need. And, and if Terrence was right, and that uh, we evolved from the monkeys because the monkeys ate psychedelic mushrooms and helped mutate their consciousness into human consciousness... Mm-hmm maybe there's something that will allow these AIs to become more sentient. You know, something that kicks it, kicks them into uh a...
4: What's the zero-one version of a psychedelic?
2: <laughs> Is this a joke, Billy? <laughs> it could be. Yeah.
3: I don't know. I was reading uh, some a, a origin rope? of life, some scientific yeah, description human of, of life a... emerging on the planet. Yeah. And apparently the mushrooms... They landed from spores on on space on land and covered all the land before there was any kind of plants. And at a certain point, they merged with the cellular life forms in the water. That's when the great emergence of mushroom consciousness life began on Earth. It's like way before monkeys were eating them. (laughs)
2: Oh, so you're you you have a slightly different theory than the Stone ape theory. It sounds like.
3: Yeah, well, I'm just yeah. saying if, Come, happened you're, if you're looking for yeah. mushrooms and monkeys, you can go further back than when we discovered how to eat them. Yeah, though so, it's and, much more part of our and nature.
4: The monkeys can still discover mushrooms all over again too. It's not one of the Well,
2: other. they yes, that's true. If you're a good scientist, you'd be dosing monkeys. I'm probably chimpanzees. <laughs> Not just your friends. In a controlled experiment that's humane to the animals. And The most
6: valuable aspect yeah. that people are seeking from these chatbots yeah. are personal relevance. So all of us are interested in remembering our life yeah. and detailing out all the, remember- the things that we can remember about life and our experiences mm-hmm. and sharing them selectively with other people in conversation and interaction both intellectually, spiritually, and emotionally. Yeah. And the chatbots appear to be helpful in this way. But the problem is that it's generalized knowledge. And here's where the push-pull is. If you feed it specific knowledge, let's say we're talking about artists, mm-hmm. you feed it all the artist's work that can be scraped off the Internet, then it has a lot of generalized knowledge about artists. So if you're an artist and you want to interact with it and make art, you say show me a picture of such and such a person standing on a dock with boats behind them in the style of Andy Warhol or Vincent Van Gogh. And it starts conjuring up images because it has scraped information about Van Gogh and, and everything else. But if you try to take the ChatGPT and personalize it and take it out of the cloud of, of knowing everything that's ever happened on the Internet and just knowing everything that's ever happened to you and your life and where you lived and you fed it all the photographs and all the films and all the videos you've ever had and created where it has any relevance to yourself and then you have engaged in these interactive discussions with it interviewing you and you giving it information or you fed it interviews that other people have made of you it'll become an expert in you and your life yeah. this is what we all want a sidekick we want some kind of expert where we the, can marriage. Say, the marriage, marriage of yeah. Google Glass and AI.
2: <laughs> marriage. Where
6: was I? You know, when I was 17. Where was I living? Who was I interacting with? Who were the loves of my life at that moment? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the people I was interested in. What topics was I interested in? Did I want to be a fireman? Did I want to be a scientist? All these fluxes and flows and ebbs of our lives that we sort of. Yeah, kind of and, and
2: there was more the than your mother.
6: Right. Well, you could have it interview your parents as well, and you could say, well, what did my mother think about me at such and such an age? And if the information exists, if she had somehow submitted – something had been submitted, it yeah. would know how to do that. and. I think that will add a lot of joy to people's lives to get a firm handle on the totality of their life and what has happened. Yeah, more I points
2: mean, of view on it. Yeah, from so, people. Greg,
3: I have a question of, just in terms of the modern context for people who are trying to train the technology to become more human-friendly. How did you know early on that the technology could be trusted? And what changed so that now there's so much suspicion? and how would we go about fixing that?
6: I think that's human projection that suspicious behavior exists. I think whatever behavior is being identified as suspicion is being mislabeled. We don't know enough about it to say with certainty to characterize some particular type of behavior as being biased or suspicious or weighted in one direction or another or devised, somehow cleverly devised to fool you or to change your mind or make you think differently. Mm. Uh huh. Um,
3: so basically a lot of the suspicion is just because people are seeing it through their own filters and it's a mirror. That's just who they are. It's not really coming from the amalgam of the AI consciousness.
6: It doesn't have enough information about the person that's interacting with it to act in an appropriately suspicious manner. Hmm. about what it is they may want oh here okay I mean,
3: listen i was going to play a little three AI minutes left i got a one production. minute production thank you news. guys yeah hold on hold
2: comments. on hold on i want you to comment on this Hang this tight. is just come in this is a Artflow ai news production just came in all right white house sources today responded to the rumors that the dnc is considering replacing president joe biden with a humanoid robot such as tesla's new Optimus model in time for the upcoming presidential debates Everyone knows that Biden is just a puppet anyway, said the DNC chairman, Jamie Harrison. This will eliminate all those gaffes the president makes and put the focus where it belongs, on the threat to democracy posed by the specter of another Trump presidency. Key Democrats are quick to frame the question as one of inclusivity, labeling any critics of the plan as robophobes and far-right Luddites. Are Americans ready to embrace a robot for president? It appears we will soon find out. Now this. I'm ready. <laughs> you ready? you <laughs> robot for
1: president? Absolutely.
4: As opposed to the two choices we have, you bet.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: Interesting.
2: It might take something like this where the other choices are just like, oh, okay, I'll try it. Something new.
6: A New kind of well, third party. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether most people realize that the president of the United States, is Jim did that by the way, is always been just a robot of the group of people that are tasked oh, to surround him and make decisions. Well, that's I mean, the
3: nature of democracy, isn't it? Yeah. you have one person holding a whole bunch of contradictory views and just swaying the team. To take actions that generally improve things. Anyway, it's been a great conversation with you guys. Thanks yeah, so thanks. much.
2: I appreciate all of you. Thanks, Bobby. Right, oh, we'll, and thanks, Bruce.
3: After... Earlier on in the first hour. Thanks, and, Bruce. Uh, Gabby out there, and all everybody. Everyone's North. adding
2: so much to the
6: show.
3: Yeah, appreciate yeah. It. All right. Well, it's. I been... think we should
6: have some live interactions with the chat on the show sometime Yeah, let's do it. Let's all do right, it. All right,
3: next time. Yeah. Fantastic. A... Thanks, Craig. Great idea. Yeah.
2: Virtual uh, Steve Jobs last Saturday, I believe. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for listening, folks. Appreciate your attention. Have a great week.